Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. The vice president votes in the affirmative, and the bill, as amended, is passed. Democrats reached a breakthrough, rallying behind a roughly $740 billion bill that would make the largest climate investment in U.S. history, provide tax credits to buy electric vehicles, lower premiums for Americans buying their own health insurance, and make prescription drugs more affordable for seniors. After months of tense negotiations and party infighting, this is a long-sought-after victory for Democrats. It's been a long, tough, and winding road. But at last, at last, we have arrived. Drumroll, please. America has a climate bill. Mike, this has been your beat. You've been following this issue for a long time. Does it feel triumphant? <laughs> Boy, triumphant? I don't know, but tomorrow, I gotta be honest, it's emotional. I mean, this this isn't the first time America has ever done something good for the climate. <laughs> you know, as you know, I wrote a book about the Obama stimulus uh, from t- 2009, which really quietly launched a clean energy revolution, even though people didn't really think of it as a climate bill. And the Inflation Reduction Act, it's not as ambitious as, you know, say that $16 trillion Green New Deal that Bernie Sanders proposed that was never going to happen. Uh, there's about $370 billion worth of climate stuff. But that's a very big deal. And this is going to help accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. And it really plants a flag. It tells the world that America is committed to fixing the climate. <laughs> like you've said, I've been covering this story forever. And there isn't usually a lot of good news to report. I remember I wrote my first big climate story just before my son Max was born. And of course, it was about biofuels. (laughs) And I remember my wife was not happy that I was gallivanting around the Brazilian Amazon when she was seven months pregnant to show how biofuels were creating this deforestation bomb. Well, now Max is 14. He's he's growing up in Miami in a world of rising seas and stronger storms and all the dystopian stuff we talk about on this show. So, yeah, this is huge. And and I'm kind of reclaimed about it. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just witnessed the elusive softer side of Mike Grunewald. <laughs> it's true. I have a heart. <laughs> But I I totally get it because I see where you're coming from. And I've also met Max. Um, And it is a big deal. Um, It's a big deal for all of us, not just the people who have been in the trenches all these years. And I am not the political animal that you are. But even if you just followed along in the headlines, you know that this is a compromise bill. And environmentalists aren't happy and they're very vocal about some of the compromises that were made to get Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who was balking, on board. But when you look at it, it's going to promote just about every imaginable form of clean energy, and that's huge. But we are a food podcast, and the thing that really got our attention is that it's the first legislation that recognizes the importance of food and ag in the climate equation. There are climavores provisions. Just for us. <laughs> Amazing. Look, they're, they're a small part of the overall bill, and they're certainly small compared to all the bazillions of dollars that the federal government blasts into farm country every year. 
but this is by far the most aggressive investment that ever linked farming and the climate. Do you think Congress has been listening to our show? <laughs> well, look, I, I shouldn't give away anything, but if Congress has been listening, uh, they, they ought to listen a little more carefully. Uh, okay, no spoilers. This is a real milestone for anybody who cares about the climate, and we're going to talk about what it means for climate itself and for politics. But because we're a food podcast, that's where our interest lies, and we're going to drill down into what it means for farmers and for eaters. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, where our special interest is eating on a changing planet. So let's just do a quick outline of what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, first of all, I should mention, since it is an Inflation Reduction Act, or at least that's the title, um, this isn't just a climate bill. Um, there's a lot in it for reducing health care costs, especially prescription drugs. Uh, there are new taxes on corporations. Uh, but we're here to talk about the climate. So you mentioned that essentially this is mostly huge investments in just about every form of clean energy, mostly in the form of tax credits for solar, wind, geothermal, battery storage, energy efficiency, zero emissions, nuclear plants, electric vehicles, you name it. If it's, uh, if it's clean, there's money for it. There's really a huge emphasis on manufacturing to build all that green stuff in the United States so that you know, we can have the factories here rather than just develop the technology and see it go overseas like we've seen for, for solar, for wind turbines. There's a lot of money for climate justice to invest in sort of underrepresented communities that often have coal plants in them. And yes, there is some kind of suboptimal stuff that will sort of provide some incentives for fossil fuels, for drilling. Um, not huge. Oh, that could never happen. <laughs> Look, like this is uh, Joe Manchin's name is is on the bill. So, you know, there's going to be some stuff in there for for Joe Manchin. And and there is. But again, overall, it's a clean energy bill. And it's really kind of surreal, right? It is. I, I mean, it's been talked about for, you know, the last 20 years. And then it happened so quickly when it actually happened. Right. It was like dead, dead, dead. And then... Wow. Pass. And look, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the Obama stimulus, which, of course, was my obsession, um, and it was a BFD for clean energy when there was no clean energy, right? Back in 2009, it just wasn't a thing. But now clean energy is a thing. Like we're seeing these just exponential growth in, in these renewable energy development and, uh, you know, it's growing, it's cost competitive, um, but we have these incredibly ambitious goals. And this is really the first time where we can say, like, you know what? We actually have a chance of meeting it. We've looked at the modeling. Looks like this could help us get 40 percent below uh, our peak emissions by 2030. That's pretty fast. Um, and look, you know, John Kerry, who is. Uh, President Biden's international climate czar. He's been running around the world saying you have to do, you know, you have to act on climate. And honestly, he's looked kind of ridiculous because the United States wasn't acting on climate. But now he gets to go to other countries and say, hey, it's not just do what we say, not what we do. Uh, we're actually being a climate leader. And you've hit on a bunch of things that that uh, are interesting for a lot of reasons. But, but first is that, okay, the bill itself 
is really interesting. What's in it, what's not in it. And we're going to talk about that. But this whole idea of the process that we didn't think this was going to happen and all of a sudden it happened. What are your takeaways on like the process? Well, you know, and this is this is a little painful for me. I've been doing a little bit of soul searching about it because let's face it, like the zeitgeist didn't change. Joe Manchin's mind changed. Right. This this coal friendly coal investor from, you know, the coal center of West Virginia, you know, the least climate friendly Democrat in all of Congress. He went from no to yes. And so one guy changes his mind. And here we are. And here we are. And I do think that's important because, look, you know, we're both wonks. Right. We're uh, we're policy hey, nerds. I resemble. And, and I've been, you know, thinking about this stuff for, you know, 14 years and thinking about it mostly from a really like a, a policy detail perspective. Like, you know, what's best? Do we you know, is a carbon tax or mm-hmm. car or climate subsidies or maybe tougher regulation of dirty fuels? Um, you know, really getting into the weeds of all these different, you know, what, how can we make this work in the best possible way? And I think objectively, we've got to say, like, every Democrat in Congress voted yes. Every Republican in Congress voted no. The way to get climate policy is to elect Democrats. It happens when Democrats are in power. This breaks my heart. Because it like, as you know, I like to live in Kumbayaville and there's no Kumbaya happening here. And, I, you know, I will take it. I'm delighted that it passed. But, you know, the fact that it is just strictly along partisan lines is just so disheartening. Well, it's it is disheartening. And for those of us who, you know, sort of were nonpartisan reporters. I spent my last seven years at at Politico, at the magazine, where, you know, with really nonpartisanship is a religion. But facts are facts. If there were 51 Democrats, uh, you wouldn't have had to make those compromises to Joe Manchin. And if there were 49 Democrats in the Senate, there's no we bill. Have it. Um, so, you know, it's it's touching and, and a good thing for the world that you're starting to see many Republicans acknowledge the reality of climate change, some even that, you know, human beings are responsible or driving it. But the Republicans are still a global outlier in their opposition to climate action. And I think we kind of have to acknowledge that even though we're nonpartisan people. Well, I think it's only fair to acknowledge that although we try to be nonpartisan, I am, full disclosure, a left-leaning centrist. And yeah, so, and the fact that we're doing this podcast indicate that our priors certainly align with doing something about climate. Right, we're climate hawks. You know, if we're talking about other big lessons, uh, you mentioned the zeitgeist. This happened because Washington Democrats wanted it to happen, not because there was a, you know, massive outpouring of climate advocacy from the public, right? It's but, n- but wait a second, doesn't massive calls for climate advocacy from the public sway politicians? Those two things don't happen completely separate in their own little vacuum. No, that's totally fair. And let me, let me distinguish what I'm saying. Because first of all, it is not a coincidence that this is called the Inflation Reduction Act and not the Climate Action Act. Right. I noticed that Biden's first tweet about this bill 
It, uh, it mentioned healthcare costs. It mentioned co corporate taxes. It mentioned that it's going to reduce energy costs, which, you know, hopefully eventually, but it did not mention the climate. And because when you look at even for Democratic voters, the normal Democratic voters, um, the climate, they're you know, they believe in that climate change is real. They would like to see climate action, but it is not, not motivating the way their anger about inflation right now is. So mm -hmm. Biden's talking about how they're reducing corp prescription drug costs. That is super popular. Talking about how we're going to do something about the climate, that isn't really moving votes. But that said, this has become a really important ask for the Democratic base. And it really was hurting Biden's approval ratings with his own base, the fact that he wasn't getting anything done on climate. And look, clearly Democratic politicians, and a lot of them are you know, not the famous Democrats, but the sort of Ron Wydens and Sheldon Whitehouse and Brian Schatz of, of Hawaii, people that even a lot of our listeners have probably never heard of, Ed Markey, for them, climate was important. I've heard of him. He's my senator. <laughs> right. But they did it not because they felt like they weren't going to get reelected if they didn't do it, but because they thought it was important. Right. And I do think you're right. You got to give some credit to the climate activists for, for putting it on their agenda. But ultimately, they thought it was important. They didn't do it because they think it's going to help them get reelected. Okay, that's fair. I, I would mention one other lesson that I think is really important because it also starts to get into, uh, into our world of food and ag and climate, um, is that this bill, um, with its $370 billion worth of, worth of goodies for essentially for the clean energy world, it's a bill full of carrots. It is not a bill full of sticks. And I lived through 2009 where Obama tried to pass cap and trade, which was all going, sticks all the time. Was, you know, it had some carrots, but it had some very serious sticks. And I've heard this ongoing debate that I've been listening to for years that I've always thought was irrelevant about a carbon tax, um, which I was always like, sounds nice, but people don't like taxes. There is a little methane fee in this bill, which I think is good. Um, right. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, I haven't gone through all the details, but I'm a little skeptical that it's going to be as tough as it sounds. Um, but and just to be clear, it does not apply to livestock. That's right. That's right. Um, but generally, this is a bill where we're going to give people money to try to do stuff that we want them to do. And that just seems to work a lot better in America than we're gonna force you to do something we want you to do, or we're gonna tax you if you don't do something we want you to do. I think that's particularly interesting because one of my takeaways from this is that, uh, you know, obviously I'm brokenhearted about the partisanship, but the way this plays out is particularly, call it interesting, in agriculture because most farmers are Republican, and some are very staunchly on the side of not talking about climate change. And although I think that in agricultural communities, the ideas about climate and climate change and the extent that it's happening and the extent to which it's it's caused by humans has shifted a little bit over the past couple of decades. It's still climate change is still sort of a dirty word in these communities. Um, yet here's this bill that is supposed to give 
farmers money to mitigate this thing they don't really believe in. And and so it's like th- this massive cognitive dissonance. And and I think it's it's really important for talking about agriculture that farmers line up on the Republican we don't favor climate change intervention side rather than on mostly on the Democratic we favor climate intervention side when those interventions are specifically targeted at agriculture. And we're going to talk a little more about that. But I think we can also agree that the certainly the recent history of uh, of American farm politics They'll has take been the money? like, Is that you know, what you're gonna has say? Been, you know, don't you dare tell us what to do. Don't tell us what to do with our wetlands uh, or our puddles. Don't tell us what to do with our air pollution, our water pollution. But you want to give us money? If you want to call it direct payments or conservation payments or, you know, loan deficiency payments or crop insurance, the politics of giving farmers money is usually pretty good. And as we'll discuss, there's a fair amount of that in this bill. (laughs) One more lesson of this bill is that the USDA got $47 billion in this bill, which is more than any of the other agencies that are involved directly in climate mitigation. I think, you know, the IRS got more. But it was a big chunk of money, and I think that that's an acknowledgement that what we eat and the way it's grown is super important to this conversation. And that Washington politicians love shoveling money to farmers. You had to get that in. Okay, to dig into the specifics of the Inflation Reduction Act, we have to go back to our food crisis episode. Because in that episode, Mike and I laid out a prescient, genius, four-point plan for solving the world's food and climate problem. So the way we want to look at this is to go back and see how well the IRA jibes with our clearly correct four-point plan. So so here's where we are. Our four-point plan was eat less beef, tackle food waste, ditch biofuels, and increase or at the very least safeguard yields. Okay, let's see how the IRA did on. Let's, let's first Can, eat less beef. Would you, would you say that maybe they, they, they noticed our obsession but uh, didn't necessarily listen to our advice, would you say? No, no. <laughs> And nobody called us, Mike. I don't know why. But our, 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 our operators are standing by. <laughs> so on Eat Less Beef, we didn't get anything. And the powers that be in our government are not interested in trying to get Americans to eat less beef. And some of the specifics of the climate bill are going to, you know, it try and raise animals in a way that is less of a climate impact. And I think that's all good. But there's nothing here to go to eat less. I, I, went, now. I went looking through line by line for our Manhattan Project for Meatless Meat. And, uh, you know, somehow I did, it just wasn't there. I don't know. what happened. It didn't make it. <laughs> I know. So this is, this is how you know we're kindred spirits. We both have the full text of the bill up on our computers to do searches on. Okay. Eat less beef. That's a big fat zero. Tackle food waste. This is another big fat zero. There was no mention of it. There was nothing to... to no Manhattan Project. No Poughkeepsie Project. Nothing. No, uh, no we got nothing. nothing. All right. So, so far, we're up. To, we're 0 for 2. And that leaves biofuels and yields. 
And Mike, I I think you have something to say about biofuels. Besides that. (laughs) My old biofuel obsession. Well, I guess we can give them credit. They did address biofuels. (laughs) Yes, they did. Um, (laughs) Of course, they're doubling down. Um, We wanted them to phase it out, which... In fairness, we're not idiots. We uh, are aware of the most days. <laughs> we aware of the politics of biofuels, and they we knew uh, they were not going to make this better. But they may have made it a lot worse. There are a, a bunch of biofuel provisions. None of them are good. They're all throwing money at the industry. Um, but there are two really uh, two really interesting ones. One involves the carbon capture and sequestration provisions. Um, which I don't think we're going to get into too deeply on this show. Um, they're very controversial in the environmental movement. Some people feel like it just, you know, if you invest in making it possible to capture the carbon and sequester it from a coal plant or a, you know, or a gas plant, that that's just going to make there more, you know, it's sort of moral hazard. It's going to create more coal and gas plants. I think so. if we could really figure out how to do some good carbon capture and sequestration, that would be great. And if we could develop the technology in the United States, that would be great. It's very hard. But what I will say is that the sort of low-hanging fruit for CCS is corn ethanol plants, um, which really release a very kind of pure stream of carbon. And I'm really worried not only that this is going to make, you know, ethanol plants more attractive, uh, but, you know, we've discussed in, in previous shows how the way that ethanol plants are analyzed as a climate problem is really screwed up. Um, they are much worse than they look in the, uh, in the technical life cycle analyses. And this is going to make ethanol plants look even better because they're going to say, hey, look, you know, at government expense, we're capturing the carbon that comes out of our smokestacks. So it's not really uh, we're not really polluters anymore. Um, That's not the biggest problem with ethanol. The biggest problem is that it's a deforestation bomb, as I said earlier. But capturing the carbon is just going to make it look like less of a problem. And that is going to be really helpful for corn ethanol. But. The even bigger problem is there is a gigantic sustainable aviation uh, program that they call it, which is essentially it's a $1.25 per gallon tax credit for aviation biofuels. Um, And there are, you know, it could be even bigger than that if they're even more sustainable. The problem, again, is how they measure sustainable. And in the past, they have measured biodiesel which is essentially you tear down forests to grow crops to run through an engine. It's incredibly inefficient. That passes and it could be a real problem. I was talking to this one guy. He read the bill and he called me and he said, oh my God, this is going to double deforestation and essentially it's going to double the harvesting of biomass around the world. We're going to need twice as much land for agriculture and forestry as we have in the past. And I was like, whoa. Then he called back the next day and he said, wait, I reread the bill. It's a five-year program, so it's sunsetted. And after two years, they make it a lot harder to do biodiesel. But in general, the the biofuel stuff, very, very bad. Biofuels are just, they're inefficient, right? You know, for the amount of energy you can create with, uh, you know, an acre of solar panels, it would take 100 acres 
of growing soy for biodiesel. It's just, it's a terrible idea. It increases hunger around the world. It is a solves a tiny little sliver of the fossil fuel problem while making the food and land and agriculture problem that we care about so much basically unsolvable. Don't do it. If you guys are not clear by now, Mike hates biofuels. <laughs> Look, if you can if you can take, you know, used restaurant grease and and right. other and that's other different. waste products, that's fine. That's that's not disaster, but if you're using good farmable land to uh you know to grow energy instead of food or storing carbon you're making a big mistake okay so that's 3 beef <laughs> waste <Right>. biofuels now <laughs> so, so far they've not only not listened to us they're making it worse I had this book when I was a kid called If I Ran the Zoo. <laughs> I think about that all the time. Okay, so our fourth is to uh maintain or increase yields because safeguarding yields is super important. And this is where the climate provisions in the USDA really come into play. Now, they are not specifically geared toward safeguarding yields. But if there's one thing farmers can be relied on to do, it's safeguarding yields. So so I think this bill sort of goes forward assuming that farmers are going to safeguard yields. And what we want to propose are ways that they can get paid to do things that may or may not safeguard yields, but will either improve soil or the ecosystem, or mitigate the climate impact. Now, of course, this gets really dicey because there aren't a lot of specifics. So most of this is funding that goes into programs that already exist at the, at the USDA, the Conservation Stewardship Program, and EQIP, which is the Environmental Quality Improvement Program. Incentives. Incentives program. Oh, thank you. Incentives program. <laughs> and, and both of those programs are farmers work with the USDA basically one-on-one to try and put together a plan for their particular farm. In fact, when my farm was in its infancy, um, we worked with the USDA uh, under EQIP and we got a grant to replace an older, inefficient, polluting outboard boat motor, it's an oyster farm, um, with a newer, efficient, non-polluting, modern boat, outboard motor. And And that's a win. Uh, it, well, it was a win for us, and it was a, a win for Barnstable Harbor, and and it was a win for the climate. It was, yeah. and that's what Equip is is designed to do. Now, the problem is that uh, a lot of the things that people point to as climate friendly ag practices don't have a lot to back them up. And, you know, no-till is a really good example. When people were first doing it, there was some evidence, but also a lot of opinion, that this was something that was going to sequester a lot of carbon. But recent studies where those things actually get measured indicate that maybe it doesn't. And maybe it doesn't sequester at all, especially if you're tilling every five years or so. But even if you're not, it turns out that storing carbon is a lot harder to do than it is to say. And, you know, no-till is good for all kinds of reasons. I, I'm 
wildly in favor of it. Um, but what I'm concerned about is that we sort of check the climate box with a practice that isn't as climate friendly as it's been made out to be. Well, as you know, this is a real concern of mine, too. I mean, maybe we should step back and say, so, so what there is in this bill, there's $20 billion specifically to promote climate smart agriculture, right? right? And I think we would, you know, we're all for that. I think we can say that. And in fact, it is not very prescriptive. Um, it leaves a huge amount of discretion to the Biden administration, um, and so since we've been talking a lot about experimentation and the importance of trying to figure this stuff out, as mm -hmm. opposed to with, you know, where the energy stuff kind of know what's needed with ag, you know, I think there's still a lot to learn. Um, and so it's great that they're going to be trying to learn it. Um, totally agree. Yeah. Now, that's we should right. mention now when we talked about in, in the in the last episode, essentially, when we're talking about safeguarding yields, a lot of what we're talking about is agricultural innovation. And mm -hmm. there was in the original Biden's original Build Back Better bill, there was one point seven billion dollars for agricultural innovation. And that got stripped out, which I think is a real shame um, because there's a lot we don't know. And we need to learn this stuff fast um, if we're going to reduce agricultural emissions. Now, look, there are three main ways to reduce agricultural emissions, right? One we discussed, it's our favorite one, and that's to increase yields so that we can make more food with less land and have less deforestation and more nature. That's really important, increasing productivity. But also there are ways to reduce on-farm emissions. And I think we saw there there's some... Uh, they at least wave at that in this bill, this idea that, you know, maybe wasting less fertilizer, less nitrogen losses, um, ways that the confined livestock facilities that none of us really love, um, but that have a huge manure and methane problem, that maybe there are ways to deal with that with digesters or solid separators or other kinds of technologies. Um, that could be really helpful. The third way is to store more carbon on the farm. And I think we should mention that one way of doing that is just by like not farming parts of it, right? And there's a lot in there for more conservation that could be really helpful, particularly on marginal farmland. If you're not growing a lot of a lot of food with a particular piece of land and you can store a lot of carbon in trees above ground, that's awesome. If you can restore peatlands, which have a huge carbon bank yeah, for no, the buck, that's big. that would be amazing. Um but let's face it, and they, they mention it a million times in this bill, when they think about carbon storage, and often when they think about climate smart agriculture, they are thinking about soil carbon. They're thinking about putting more carbon in the soils. And it's true, there's a lot of carbon in the soil, even more than there is in the atmosphere, but we don't really know how to get it there and keep it there. I, I got to jump in right here because I think this is really important. And we end up talking about it almost every episode that like the buzzword of the day is regenerative. And there's this idea that if you just farm in a different way, you will improve soil health, you will sequester more carbon, and you will have just as much food. And this is a lovely idea, but it we haven't seen many of these practices panning out when we actually go on the farm and measure the stuff. 
I think I mentioned on one of the early episodes, I, I visited Tom Steyer's Regenerative Beef Ranch. It was an awesome place. It was beautiful. They were doing some amazing work in reducing soil erosion and improving biodiversity on the ranch but they were actually losing soil carbon. We're hoping to have Secretary Tom Vilsack on this show, his deputy, uh, Robert Bonney. Um, they are paying very close attention to that. I think uh, Vilsack is in, in Michigan right now as we speak to, uh, to talk about some of this stuff. But they have, when they've talked about climate smart agriculture, and even before this bill, they were putting out a billion dollars in grants, their rhetoric has all been about regenerative practices. Right. Um, No-till, cover crops, which I think we both think are great, but not clear about their carbon impact. More diverse crops, which could be really good, but we don't know the effect on yields. And again, I want to emphasize that all of these things are unequivocally good for lots of reasons, but they might not be climate mitigation reasons. I think the bottom line is that we're not sure how this money is going to be spent, right? Like there's a huge plus up for EQIP, as you mentioned, and EQIP, you know, that could mean cover crops, right? Which which the uh, the president of the United States mentioned during his first address to Congress. He actually mentioned cover crazy. crops. Um, <laughs> But right now, the number one use of EQIP, the most contracts that that uh, that the USDA gives out every year, is for fences. Okay. In fairness, Mike, good fences can also make for good grazing, and I think that that this goes back to the whole idea of okay, we're not investing in eat less beef in this bill, but we are investing in maybe raising beef better, and if we can sequester more carbon with different kinds of grazing algorithms. You know, fencing is necessary for that. I Look, I'm not defending all the money spent on fencing, but I think it is. It's a perfectly legit thing to do. So don't disfence. I think that's fair. But look, this is a real opportunity to move the needle on climate. And they right. mentioned some things in there that we like about, uh, you know, feed additives to reduce methane. I think, you know, I, you know, I visited, uh, you know, Ermias Kebriab's experiment that he's doing out at Cal Davis, where he's mm -hmm. he's putting a little bit of seaweed into into some cattle feed and they're burping 80 percent less methane. Um, that's the kind of thing we want to that's a win. Make sure it works and get it out there as much as possible. Anything that reduces nitrogen use and even conservation. Again, like if you're not taking away from yields, if you're using, you know, marginal land, I would love to see more of that land just become, you know, real natural carbon storage and just biodiverse, beautiful places um, rather than marginal farmland. And so again, okay. that's great. But I think what we've really focused on in this show is that if we're going to call it climate smart, we want to see evidence that it's climate smart. And, um, you know, it's got to either reduce emissions, store more carbon or increase yields. And Look, I think that there's going to it's going to be really important that now that this money's out there, it is not dictated how it's going to be spent. I think that's still up in the air. And I think people who care about this stuff should really be pressuring the administration to spend it in ways that can be more helpful rather than less. So all of you out in listener land, uh, contact your representatives in Congress and tell them they should be listening to climate wars because we have a four point plan. Okay, so so the bill doesn't do so well, according to our schema here, but there's still 
a lot in the bill that we think is super interesting and super great. And I want to talk about like some of the the little things that got our attention that we really like. Okay, Mike, you and I have been through this bill with, if not a fine tooth comb, I mean, the thing's 800 pages or whatever, <laughs> but it, at least with a, a wide tooth comb. And there were some things that caught my eye that I really like. And I know that you have a list too. So let's, I'll do one of mine. You give me one of yours and let's, let's get some of our favorites on the table here. And I'm going to start with my number one absolute favorite thing in the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's a tiny little line item. It's $300 million. And I'm going to quote the bill for a program to quantify carbon sequestration and carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide emissions by collecting field-based data to assess the carbon sequestration and reduction in greenhouse gas emissions associated with farming and conservation practices. That is measurement, my friend. (laughs) They're spending $300 million to figure out how to measure this stuff. And that's an absolute prerequisite for being able to pay farmers for carbon sequestration and to just understand what the impact of our food is. Three cheers for measurement. They are speaking our love language. I know. (laughs) Hopefully this will be done a little bit more objectively. Gosh, so now is it my turn? I I gotta just pick one. What do you have? I mean, I gotta admit, like, I know this is not we're climavores, but a lot of my favorites in this in this bill are from my old energy world. That's I mean, allowed. I just got so excited when I saw this money for geothermal. It's so awesome. Energy storage is so important because, like, you know, if we're gonna have all this renewable energy, we gotta store it so that we can use it at night and not just for a couple hours. We gotta figure out how to store it long term. Um, okay, couple- I'm hoping that everybody has something that they're as passionate about as you are about batteries. <laughs> exactly. Well, we should mention also the loan program, which could even be used for some of this stuff. But uh, everybody hated the loan program when I was writing about this because it's Solyndra, right? It's Solyndra. It's it's this program where they give money to basically innovative, uh, to try to jumpstart green stuff. Um, And everybody hated because they gave some money to Solyndra and it failed. But that program has been unbelievable. It is making money for taxpayers. It is not costing anything. Their their loan loss rate is like 2%. And it is, you know, it has really helped build a lot of stuff. And I think in the future, it could conceivably be used for some of our stuff, for for plant-based meats, for, uh, you know, for for reducing food waste technologies. So it's just, it's incredibly small amount of taxpayer, you know, money up front, just basically to backstop these loans. And we're talking about $250 billion in loans. It's, uh, it's really incredible. So I think that's exciting. Your turn. My turn. Okay. I love the $10 billion to support rural communities getting renewable energy, partly because I'm in favor of rural communities having access to renewable energy, but partly, again, for the kumbaya reasons that, that I think that it's in these rural outposts where there's skepticism about climate impact. And if renewable energy can get there and if it can reduce bills, if people can 
be on board with it, maybe that can help the zeitgeist change in some of those communities. Or maybe I'm just whistling past the graveyard. Well, I don't know. There's something very interesting about that because a lot of that money goes to or, towards communities. And it's, the idea is that they're going to turn coal plants into solar or wind plants. And that is a huge opportunity since the infrastructure is already there. You know, the the wires are already there. But as you said, it is going to depend a little bit on the zeitgeist. Some of these, you know, in red states, in red counties are going to have to be willing to say like, okay, here's this money. It's going to be better for our bottom line. But, you know, I've written about the war on coal. And if it was just economics, we'd have hardly any coal left in this country. Um, A lot of these places, you know, it is seen as it's this totally kind of like going social. woke yeah. if you're putting mm-hmm. in a solar plant, even if it's cheaper. And so I think there it is going to depend on how whether this is seen as economics or whether this is seen as like, you know, Biden wokeness. I think that just having the money on the table is going to help normalize Absolutely. It, I'm excited about really it. really important. Okay. Do another, tomorrow. Oh, you want me to do another? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to say the $8.5 billion for EQIP because... Um, a couple of reasons. First of all, because, you know, the downside, it's a flexible program, so we don't know what we're getting. But the upside is it's a flexible program. So, <laughs> you know, maybe people will will be doing these these interesting things. And I, I look forward to seeing what people do with this. And it does link back to what you said about, you know, we're looking for innovation. We're looking for experimentation. And I think EQIP is going to facilitate that. And there is a special emphasis in the, the bill on methane reduction for livestock. And not and, only that, on grazing management. Which was right. going to be one of mine. That there That's was a, your fences, with, with, Mike. Was, well, <laughs> I, you know, hopefully it's not just to put up some fences. But look, we've talked ad infinitum about how, you know, beef is a climate problem. Um, but that's why that's why you got to look at, you know, how cattle are raised. Right. It's like Willie Sutton. Right. Like, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you focus on grazing if you're concerned about emissions? Because that's where the emissions are. You got to go hunting where the ducks are. And I'm excited about the idea that if if you can figure out better ways to manage grazing, that even if it's just to increase livestock yields, that's a huge win for the climate. And so to be like, we talk about beef all the time and we have been painted as wanting to do away with beef, but that is not the case. We're not anti-beef. We just think in the developed world, we have to eat much less of it. And the the cattle that we raise have to be uh, raised in as climate friendly a way as possible. And I think that there are, there are provisions in this bill for that. I have two more one is just a quick throwaway and has nothing to do with climate, but I love seeing $15 million for the IRS to develop a free tax filing system because I think it's high time we had that. Yeah, and good that luck is getting apropos. that past TurboTax. <laughs> uh, they're fighting it tooth and nail. <laughs> so, all right, that's just my little thing. That's but awesome. the, the other thing that I love in this bill is that there is $1.5 billion specifically for tree planting. And I really have a soft spot for tree planting. And I know that, you know, we can't solve the climate crisis just by planting trees, but every tree helps. And if we can plant a bunch of them with this 1.5 billion, I am down with it. 
I 100% agree with you. And in fact, they're talking about trees in urban areas, which not only are good for the climate, but uh, you know they're good for climate resilience as as cities get hotter. Same with uh, silvopasture, planting trees on on pastures and grazing land, where not only are you providing you know carbon benefits that we can see, not like, you know, we hope they're storing carbon in the soil. If you're planting a tree, there's carbon in it. We can see it. Um, But it's also, some of them actually help fertilize the ground, which can help, you know, put more nitrogen in, grow more grass, increase livestock yields. And as the world gets hotter, that's going to help give, exactly, some, you know, put these poor cows, give them, you know, a place to, to escape from the sun. Trees for the wind, people. Trees for the wind. I would also point out, so you mentioned tree planting, and we're all for that. But I also want to point out a potentially excellent provision that's going to involve tree cutting. A conundrum. There's $1.8 billion in there for managing the wildland urban interface, the WUI. And essentially what they're talking about is thinning forests, getting rid of some of that fuel, possibly even doing some prescribed burns, but to avoid these out-of-control wildfires that have just been a carbon disaster in places like California. So, Mike, I have come to the end of my list. I'm sure there's lots of interesting stuff in there that uh, that didn't make it, but those were the things that really caught my eye. Do you have any others? I do have one more, and it's a little different because it's not in the bill that Congress just passed. Um, it's in the deal that Joe Manchin cut uh, in order to get his signature, to get his yes vote. And that's that, and this has been very controversial, is that he has gotten agreement from Senator Schumer and from Senate Democrats, presumably, that there will be an additional bill that is essentially going to streamline permitting. So from Manchin's perspective, so that it's easier to do fossil fuel stuff, on, especially on public lands. And environmentalists are all up in arms about it. They're saying, we got to fight this. We didn't agree to this Joe Manchin deal. And I get it. But it's also going to be really important to streamline permitting to do the clean energy stuff to do solar farms, to do wind farms, mm-hmm. to do transmission They're controversial. lines, to get, to get all that solar and wind power to, you know, which is usually out often in the, in the middle of nowhere to get it to the cities that needs the extra energy. And I think that's really important. Uh, and it kind of leads to maybe one of my larger points about this bill. This is really, you know, again, it is carrots um, and it is, but it's, it's a different kind of environmentalism. It's a kind of yes environmentalism, right? In the in the Earth Day era, a lot of environmentalism when there was just so much pollution, so much even littering, so much nastiness, so much of environmentalism, and God bless the uh, the pioneers in this area, but it was about saying no. It was about saying like, you know, you're doing these terrible things, we need to stop you. Well, now these terrible things are happening, but we're going to have to build stuff to stop it. We're going to have to do stuff. And I think of the Inflation Reduction Act as a really exciting effort to do stuff. We, I don't begrudge anybody who's pointing out some of the suboptimal provisions in it. You know, it's Which pro- we just did. <laughs> yeah, we just did it too. And look, and it's, it's, 
it's important to to point out where where the bill falls short. And it's important to say that this is not nearly enough. This is a start, but the climate is a massive problem. But I do think environmentalists, they tend to fall into this kind of Debbie Downer trap, right? I mean, the climate groups, they gave Biden's climate plan an F minus, right? It's brutal. Uh, We got to say, he has kept his word. The Democrats have kept their word and they have done something. You know, progress is progressive, right? I mean, I, I you may have seen, I got a little upset on, on Twitter when Adam McKay, right? The, uh, the, the director of Don't Look Up, the climate movie, mm-hmm, right. which is, you know, and it's one of those movies where it's like, it's great because it's like, you know, they, they did a metaphor that climate is this big asteroid that's heading towards us. And everybody's like, don't look up, right? We don't want to acknowledge it. And it's, it's you know, it's it's a why we're never going to act on, on climate. And, you know, and of course, at the end of the movie, the asteroid hits the earth and everybody dies. And it's, you know, ha ha ha, just like climate. Um, and predictably, Adam McKay was on Twitter, you know, dumping all over the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, here's this tidbit for fossil fuels. It sounds like it's just the same old characters getting together and doing whatever the big industry wants, which is the message of don't look up. But it's wrong, right? There's this idea that politicians are all the same, right? They all suck. That was kind of the message of the big short too. They never do anything. And look, it's completely good to push politicians and some of them do suck, but they don't all suck. And the ones that do suck, they don't suck equally. And I think part of, you know, part of being a grown-up is recognizing that. And I think this is a really important moment. I got to say that most environmental groups really have been grown-ups about this. They have they have not been happy about everything they had to do to get Joe Manchin on board. But they've realized that this is a step forward and they are in the stepping forward business. And I think that's a a really important message, not only for the environmental movement, but for anybody who cares about the climate. It has to be yes and. And I know it's a cliche, but it's so true here. And we see so much sniping about how, you know, your solution is bad. This, my solution is is the way to go. And this is a smorgasbord of different, more or less effective solutions. It's a big, fat yes and. And that's why I'm very happy and to what, see And what's it my line? Better is better than worse. It really is. It really is. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we would like this conversation to be two-way. We want to know what you're thinking. Call us, 508-377-3449, or email us at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. Your question might be on an upcoming episode. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer and Dalvin Abawaje is the associate producer. Engineering done by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrong. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. We are so appreciative. You guys are listening. The numbers have been great. The best way you can help us grow is to spread the word. Give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. 
And if you have somebody else you think would like our show, please pass them a link. We'll be back again next week, and we hope Congress will be listening. 